Hey, welcome to Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover. Um, if you've been listening for any length of time, you probably have my website memorized. It's educateforlife.org. All kinds of stuff on the website dealing with issues about defending your faith in the Bible, being able to share uh, comfortably your love for God and your love for the truth of the Bible. We've got all kinds of things on there like creation and evolution. We deal with cultural issues. We deal with uh, world religions. Um, just all the questions that pop up um, especially as we're heading up here towards uh, Thanksgiving and the holidays, you're around family members and, and frequently questions will pop up. Lots of great answers on there. Check it out, educateforlife.org. I'm broadcasting from Southern California. I'm broadcasting from my home right now, but typically we're out of the K-Praise studios, K-Praise 12, 10 a.m. Um, down here in Southern California. And uh, my guest today is up in LA and his name is Beckett Cook. He's the author of Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption. And Beckett, I just want to say thanks a lot for coming on the program today. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Glad to be Abs here. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm really excited about the interview and, and just a very relevant subject. Um, it's awesome to hear the testimony of somebody who came from such a totally different direction where you were going. And then now, I mean, you did a total 180. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to start out uh, for those of a little bit of background about, I mean, you really were a Hollywood insider. You were hanging out with uh, movie stars and um, you were really, you were having a, you were having a good time. Um, so it's not like you were down in despair necessarily. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in Hollywood and so forth. Yeah. Well, the good times run out after, I mean, they, that, they, they diminish after a while, but um, yeah. So I grew up in Dallas, Texas and I moved to LA after college basically I lived lived in Tokyo for a year then moved to LA and um, you know I knew from a very early age that I had same-sex attraction I explored that in high school with my best friend who turned out to be gay then I explored it again in college with a, a friend who was gay uh, we he came out to me in college I came out to him it, it was kind of like this thing that kept happening and um so the more in high school and college, I didn't think of it as an identity. I thought of it just as kind of like a passing sort of phase and like it, it would, you know, I would eventually just grow out of it. But I, uh, and I wasn't out to anyone. I mean, I was out to like very few people in, in high school and college and um, just like, a, like three people. But it wasn't until after college that I uh, met, I met my first boyfriend. And that was a huge game changer. And that's when we fell in love. And that's when, um, you know, the floodgates opened and I, you know, came out to my family, I came out to my friends. And, um, and that's when it was, you know, I, I really identified as, as a gay man. Like that's when the identity became completely cemented. And, and um, so when I moved to LA, of course, you know, my group of friends were, they were all from, you know, the East Coast and from, from Brown University and Princeton. And, and uh, they were all like super smart and funny and, and super, uh, you know, accepting. And, and, you know, some, some people in the group were gay, some were not, and most were not. But um, we were really close friends with, you know, just all these, and all of my friends ended up becoming, you know, they were all in the business and uh, writers, producers, actors, directors, and they all ended up becoming 
very extremely successful in their fields. Um, some of like one of my best friends became, she's Mariska Hargitay. Like she became like a, you know, a TV star on Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And she has, she got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and like Minnie Driver who was a really close friend of mine during Goodwill Hunting when she was doing that oh, movie. Wow. And, that's huge. She and I were like, she was, we were all really close in this group. And like, we, we went to Mexico to Cabo San Lucas together. And, um, and I was just friends with, you know, living in LA and living in, and having this group of friends was like, I was always invited to everything. I mean, every party, every movie premiere, the Golden Globes, the Oscars, the Emmys, like, it was just like a constant thing where ever almost every night I would go to a different, you know, Hollywood party. And, wow. you know, I wouldn't, I met everyone, literally met everyone. I mean, there's, <laughs> and hung out with everyone and, and was became friends with a lot of actors and actresses and hung out at Drew Barrymore's house and a lot and went swimming in her, you know, her pool, the only diving board left in, in Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, I, it just was like, yeah, and like, right, you know, one, things always kind of happen like this, where one night I, a friend calls me and is like, hey, you want to go to this party up in Benedict Canyon in Beverly Hills? I'm like, sure. And it's Prince's house, you know, and then like Prince comes and it's this gigantic, crazy mansion that he was renting in, uh, up in the hills. And, um, and I walk in and, and, you know, I look and I, when I walked in, I was like, I wonder if he's going to perform tonight in his backyard. <laughs> and I look in the backyard, which is gigantic. And there's a stage set up with the Prince symbol and all the instruments. I'm like, oh my gosh. So he performed like for three hours in his backyard. And it was just like 50 people there, you know, and wow. it was like, but those kinds of things were just constantly happening in my life. And like my friends, um, you know, I traveled around the world and, and did a lot of stuff uh, work-wise. I, I became a production designer. Um, for after. a lot of people, for a lot of people, that's like, I mean, we're talking, I, I've made it. This is it. This is a dream come true. This is the end all and be all of life, right? I mean, uh, that's what a lot of young people really dream about. Yeah. And like my job was as a production designer in the fashion world, like I worked with everyone. I worked with you know, Katy Perry several times. I worked with Paris Hilton at her house. Like I was at her house like at least three or four times. And plus I was kind of friendly with her. I went to her engagement party like years ago when she was engaged to somebody else. But, um, and so like I was there and I worked with, you know, Jessica Chastain and uh, every, uh, what's her name? Cara Delevingne, all these kind of actresses and, and models and, and uh, Oprah and uh, just all those, everyone. And so yeah. I, I was very much, not only in my personal life was I kind of involved in Hollywood and, and all the party circuit and all that, but also in my professional life, it was very much a part of that. So it was kind of all around me. And it, to be honest, I mean, it was really fun, you know, for a long, long time. I, I enjoyed it and I just thought, okay, this is what life is all about because I'm gay and I, I knew that God was never an option for me because I was gay. So I'm like, I'm gay, God's not an option. I, therefore he doesn't exist. And the whole point of life is to have these kind of 
extraordinary experiences and to know, you know, get to, to know myself, to kind of go into my inner life and, and to find true love, you know, which I had like many, many boyfriends over the years that all kind of had to say, it was the same situation every time, two years. It was like the two year shelf life of, of the boyfriend. Um, but, you know, after doing that for, uh, I moved to LA in 93, so 2003, after like 15 years of that or whatever, I just, you start to kind of, it starts to wear out, you know, the, the excitement wears off. And, yeah. And that's what started happening with me. And, and I was, um, as I put, say in my book, I was in Paris at Paris Fashion Week. And I used to go to Fashion Weeks in New York and Paris a lot because I was in the, you know, I had a ton of, friend, a ton of friends in the fashion world um, business. And so that year, it was 2009, March of 2009. And that's kind of like the big turning point for me was I was, I was at fashion week, went to a bunch of the shows, went to a bunch of the parties. They have after parties after the shows. And, and I was at this one after party and Kanye was there and like all, everyone, you know, in the fashion world was at this party and um, everyone was dancing and drinking and sh drinking champagne. And, and like, you know, it's like, it's kind of like, what else can you, more can you have? Like what yeah. else more can you achieve or, and it was just like everyone was beautiful and all this stuff. And, um, but I just felt this like overwhelming emptiness at this party. And I just was like, whoa. And I just felt like I can't go on like this anymore. I can't just keep going to parties and keep socializing and going to dinners at Ariana Huffington's house. And I mean, the Huffington Post, like, I, like and, and, you know, having dinner with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep after the Oscars, like, like that's all fun kind of, but I, that's not going to sustain me anymore. Mm. And so I was, I was really in a panic about it because I, I knew, again, I knew that God was not an option for me. So I just, so did was, you, did you ever think about spiritual issues all through this, what you're going through with did these things ever rise to the surface? Uh, barely. I mean, not really because my friends, it was kind of like, we never once spoke about God and among mm -hmm. my friends. We, it was just assumed. We all just knew we, we all, it was assumed that God did not exist. And to even bring up God was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, obviously he doesn't exist. So why are we even talking about it? So, so I really, at that point by 2009, I was pretty much an, I was an atheist. I mean, I was, I just thought the Bible, the Christian story was an ancient myth, just like any other ancient myth. I really believe that by the time, by the time 2009 rolled around. And so I just felt like, what am I going to do with my life? Because I can't keep just going to parties and I need to know the meaning of life. I always wanted to know the meaning of life, but I always, I kind of, I guess I believed that the meaning of life was un attainable like to, mm. to know what it was I, yeah. I really thought that it was there was no way to really know that um so i i just kind of like was in a panic went back to my hotel that night in paris and was up all night kind of freaking out about my life and what to do in the future and then i got back to la uh shortly like a few days later i flew back to la and got busy with work and 
and then six months later, everything changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you, everything you know, changed. Yeah, that, it's incredible the, the how quickly the change took place in your life. You you wrote something that I thought was really interesting, or um, or you, you're quoted as saying, "It was not like I hadn't thought about the meaning of life. I had read so many Russian novels and gone to so many plays in New York and London by serious playwrights." These guys are so smart, they will give me some answer to the meaning of life. Every time I went to one of these plays, I would get so close to truth and then it would evaporate. I left the theater every time frustrated and I did that for years. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's, that's yeah, really interesting I mean, that it evaporated. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, I would go every, I was, I was go to New York all the time and to London. And, um, and every time I was in New York, especially New York, I would see a show, almost, like a Broadway show or off-Broadway, almost every night while I was there, like a couple weeks. Um, and I w it was like, you know, these were major playwrights like Eugene O'Neill and Tom Stoppard and uh, Tony Kushner and um, Harold Pinter, like these brilliant playwrights who, especially Angels in America with, uh, Tony Kushner wrote that play. and. If you watch that play, it's a six-hour play. I saw half, the first half in London and the second half on Broadway. Uh, but if you watch that play, that's kind of the definition of evaporation. Like, if you watch that play, it seems like there's so much sort of kind of spiritual understanding of, all, of everything. And there's so much dialogue and so much um, depth to it. But by the end, you're just kind of like, okay, well, what does all that mean? Yeah. It did, you didn't give me any, you gave me some sort of truth about human experience, but there's no ultimate truth to your play. Yeah. And, and that's what I was kind of seeking when I would go to these plays. And I would always leave just frustrated because no one, obviously, none of these playwrights had ultimate answers. They just had kind of like, they had humanist answers you know, and so that was really frustrating. Yeah, they had depth in their thinking, but um, ultimately no solutions to the issues. Um, yeah. And then you, you, um, you talk about in your book also how you were at this coffee shop and you end up um, seeing a Bible for the first time. And, uh, you know, you engage in conversation, uh, pushed by your friend to engage in conversation with them uh, about it. Um, something interesting about the conversation that I thought, was interesting is that you asked them, how does your religion or how does your church feel about, about um, homosexuality? And they didn't pull any punches. They didn't hem and haw about it. They just said, oh, it's a sin. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have the courage to say that. They wouldn't just be like, you know, they try to come up with a good excuse or something, but yeah. they just said it straight out. Yeah, and I don't even know if today in this class, you know, in 2020, if someone, if they would be that on, if they would have been that honest now. Yeah. Because it's like back in 2009, it was easy. I think it was a little easier to say something like that in public. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, they said they were evangelical Christians and that they went to this church in Hollywood called Reality LA on Sunset Boulevard. And, and I was, you know, I said, well, I asked them a bunch of questions about, about their faith and about everything. And, um, cause I was curious, like I, when I saw these young people with Bibles, it, I, it piqued my curiosity because of that night in Paris six months before I was kind of like, okay, maybe this is the answer. I don't know. Like, 
there's a slim chance it could be. And so let me just see what they, they say about, about reality. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> about their tour. It's called reality LA. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, when they told me that homosexuality was a sin, I, I wasn't that surprised, but I was surprised at my reaction because I, mm. A year before that, or two years, ten years, I would have just been like, "You guys are crazy. You need, you need therapy." But because, again, because of that night in Paris, I was open to like, I was open to the idea of, okay, what if God exists? What if, what if homosexuality is a sin? And what if I built my entire life on this false foundation and I don't know it? And so oh, wow. they they invited me to their church the following Sunday. And I said, well, let me just, I'll give me the address and I'll think about it. So I had a whole week to think, think about it. And it was, it was pretty a risky endeavor because if just, even if friends of mine found out that I was going to an evangelical church, Christian church, it's like, I would be, I would be a heretic. Like yeah, I would be yeah. banished from the gay community and, and, uh, and burned at the stake. And so it, it was weird. It was a little scary to go because I thought, well, if I go and nothing happens and people find out that I went, like it's going to be humiliating and, yeah. and they're going to think I'm really strange. And uh, why am I looking, you know, at evangelical Christianity? And so, but the following Sunday I woke up and I was just like, I think I'm just going to do this. And I went to I, this, this church. It's in a public high school auditorium in LA. And I, uh, I walked in and um, heard the Christian worship music. And I, I immediately cringed because I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot Christian music existed. But then I realized it was actually good. Like I, it was very nice, actually, really beautiful. And then I sat down near the front and the pastor, I sat by myself and um, I don't know where the people were who invited me, but the pastor comes out and he starts preaching on Romans chapter seven. And he's just preaching the gospel basically for an hour. I mean, he's just like, he's just like a, an, a, Tim Chaddock is his name and he's an, he's an incredible uh, preacher. He has a, such an anointing and he was just preaching the gospel. And it was like, it was the first time in my life that I had, really heard the gospel and understood it like mm -hmm. i knew as a kid like i knew what the gospel was like tech in my head like technically i knew what what it was but it didn't really hit me <laughs> until that day yeah what it really was so as he was preaching just my everything in my mind my heart was it, everything he was saying was resonating as truth and and i didn't know why it was it was such a freaky experience and and um and so after the sermon he leaves the stage then this guy on the side of the auditorium prays for me i i walk over there which was another risky thing to do i walk over and i'm like hey i don't know what i believe but i'm here and he prays for me and I, it was it seemed really powerful and really loving and i was kind of like why does this random straight dude love me so much because it felt so loving and kind and so I, I walk back to my seat, I sit down, everyone else is standing and worshiping for the next 25 minutes because there's a, a long worship after the sermon. And um, so everyone's singing, I'm sitting down and 
seconds later, the, the, suddenly the Holy Spirit just is like, and completely overwhelms me and floods my mind, my spirit, my soul. And in that moment, God was just, God revealed himself to me. And God was like, I'm God. Jesus is my son. Heaven's real. Hell is real. The Bible's true. Welcome to my kingdom. Wow. And I just like started weeping and bawling and bawling. Like I cried harder than I'd ever cried in my whole life. Yeah. It was the most intense cry. Um, Cause I was just born again. So like, yeah. it was like yeah. an infant cry. And, and, um, and then after I collected, I mean, I cried for 25 minutes, just, I was heaved, I was doubled over, like, yeah. and, and people around me were worried about me. They were going to call the medics. Cause like, they were like, what's going on with those guys. <laughs> um, and then I got home and this is the really kind of what sealed the whole deal is I got home, got in bed to take a nap. And then it happened again. It was like Moses when he's in the cleft of the rock and God passes yeah. by with his, his glory. I was just in my bed and I was, I mean, just my mind was just like, I didn't even know what was going on. But then suddenly God was like, <laughs> like, he's like, let me show you some more of my glory. And I just started immediately bawling again. I felt his presence so powerfully. It was like a road to Damascus kind of presence. Wow. Yeah. And I just jumped out of my bed and I was crying and I, in my, the middle of my bedroom, I was like, God, you have my whole life. It's yours. I'm done. Wow. And that, that was September 20th, 2009 at two, 30 p.m. and 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 I knew in that moment I knew to the core of my being I knew that homosexual behavior was sinful I knew that it was no longer a part of my future I knew that dating guys was no longer a part of my future but I didn't care because I just met Jesus and I was like good riddance to that old life like I'm gonna go with this guy because he's way better and um so that was like super clear i mean it had always been clear to me just growing up it's there's not i mean i just talked about this in this thing i wrote an article i wrote but it's just it's just growing up it was like obvious to me i knew i couldn't be a christian because i i it was clear to me what the bible had to say about homosexuality there was no mystery to it like yeah. i just it was just utterly clear and um so but that day when i got saved it was just like god made it extra clear and it was like okay this is this is no longer my my life and i <clears throat> and uh i've been single and celibate since that day and i'm happy to be <laughs> single and celibate just because and that's an amazing testimony because not a lot of people have lived the life you've lived and they can come from the angle of hey man you know i've experienced all of this and i'm telling you right now um, there's nothing in comparison to knowing jesus christ and uh, I guess that's kind of my question for you too, is because, you know, I know uh, Christian kids who have um, homosexual feelings and, uh, you know, you speak, you've spoken at universities and different places. And do you ever have um, young people come up to you and say, yeah, I have these homosexual feelings. Um, how, what do I do about this? How do I deal with this? Um, or parents even who, who might be having a, a young um, son or daughter who's having these homosexual feelings and they're like, we're at a loss. You know, we love our child, we, we, we do, but we're Christians and we don't know how do you even deal with this kind of a situation. In California, you know, it's illegal to um, actually counsel a child through yeah. those homosexual feelings. Um, so, so what do you say to um, those young adults or those parents uh, that ask you those sorts of questions? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I have a section in my book on, on what not, what to do and what not to do as a parent um, and as a, as a kid who comes out to a parent. Um, but uh, you know, like you said, it's illegal in California for, counsel for counselors, but I, that's where the parents have to come in. They have to come in and be, almost be the counselors to their kid and, and just lovingly walk them, like be with them and just be, see here, the thing is, I talk about this in the book, when you, when you grow up gay and you, it's like this private secret, it's, it's a secret your whole life, you have many, many years to, to, uh, to come to terms with it. And so when you, when you come out to your parents, a lot of times the parents are just like in shock and taken aback. And so, cause you've had all this time to process it, but your parents haven't. So you have to give your parents time to grieve and to mourn and to kind of like understand it. I mean, you can't, cause I, a lot of what I see it happen a lot is when people come out and I, this was, you know, my experience too. It's like, you kind of expect your parents to just be on board immediately. Like if you're not on board with this, like, you know, you're a terrible parent, but it's like everyone needs to have grace with each other and have patience with each other. And, and, um, but I think the best thing a parent can do, I mean, my parents were so lovely and I mean, I, I wasn't in high school, like they didn't find out till after college. So it was a kind of a different story, but they were just so loving to me and they believed it was, my parents were Christians. Um, they believed it was a sin and, um, but they were just super loving to me and, um, and I think the key for parents is to keep the channels of communication open mm -hmm. with your child yeah. and yeah. just say, Hey, like, I know you're struggling with this and you're, you know, this is happening in your life. Like come talk to me anytime you're, you know, you want to, it's the doors open. Like, I'm not going to judge you. I, I want to listen to you. I want to, you know, um, you know, and obviously have your conviction settled about the issue. Like, yes, this, this is, you know, I knew my parents believed it was a sin and like, there was no, like they were clear about it. Um, but so as a parent, have your conviction settled on it, but love your child through that process. And, and um, what I would say to, to young people, I mean, it's really, really hard. You know, it's hard for people in high school to, who are going through this same sex attraction and who are maybe coming out as gay or whatever. It's, it's really difficult to, uh, to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus mm. at that yeah. young age. It's oh, really sure. hard. Cause like I had to kind of go through the whole thing. Like I had to live, I, did, I had to be the prodigal son and live the life for 20 years, mm -hmm. you know, and, and then finally come back to, you know, or come to Jesus, come to God. And, and, um, and so that it's a really tricky time. And I, a, a child who comes out to his or her parents never forgets that moment. It's a really important moment. Yeah. And that's why the, it's really important to just be, uh, have self-control and have, and be loving and be um, super generous and, and, and just love your child unconditionally and try as best you can to, to process it with them and walk them through it and, and walk with them and say, look, you know, I, you know, I don't, 
I'm here for you. Just whatever, you know, you need, I'm here for you. And that's the best you can really do because yeah. there's, you can't, you know, chain your kid to, you know, or lock your kid in the bedroom. And um, there's, you know, that's not going to be helpful and it's not going to bring your kid to Christ. Like it's not going to help bring them in, you know, into the kingdom or, or whatever. It's not going to, so that's, I think the best thing you can do is just really love them and try to, to have open communication. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. So, um, the other question along those same lines, you, you know, you said um, it's important to have your convictions settled. And, you know, you talk about this a little bit too. You said um, the culture has infiltrated the church. Christians don't know what to believe anymore. Is homosexuality a sin or is it not anymore? Right. And, and we have tons of uh, cultural influencers all over the place who blatantly don't think it's a sin. The government, you know, uh, doesn't uh, obviously doesn't think it's a sin. The law doesn't. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's a, to, to say, have your convictions settled. I mean, we live in a time where people have, uh, there's a lack of convictions. And so I guess my question is, is, um, you know, I have students and I, I have uh, great discussions with my students in school and, uh, we, we talk about all these different uh, difficult issues. I help them wrestle through them, but, um, there's a lot of kids, Christian or otherwise, who would say, um, I don't think homosexuality is wrong. I don't see any reason for it to be wrong. Um, and I just, you know, I, lo- I love the Bible or I-, I love Jesus, but you know what? I think homosexuality is fine. And, uh, you know, how do you respond to somebody who-, who says something like that? And how do you, how do you move that ball down the court um, towards establishing those convictions um, that you are, you currently are and um, have those convictions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, first of all, one, we have to realize this is something that we, there's blind spots uh, in the world because we have to understand that we're living in a very specific time and place in history. This is a very specific epoch. Mm. And, and so we have to understand like 30, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, th- it wouldn't even be a question. Like yeah. it, it wouldn't even be a question that the Bible was clear about homosexuality being a sin. So you have to, you have to ask yourself, what has changed? What, like, has the Bible changed? Has the word of God changed or has the culture changed? And if the culture has changed, how has it influenced me? Mm. So I try to get across to people, especially young people, everything you're consuming, like you're imbibing it from social media to TV shows, to Netflix, to whatever it, it's all, you're being bombarded by it 24 seven. And those are the lies of the world. Like I, my, a lot of my friends produce the content that those that you guys are watching. Yeah. (laughs) And, and my old friends, they, they, who, some of them are gay and, um, and they produce that content and they're writing it from a place of kind of a secular humanist worldview. And so uh, you have to understand that all of that, all of that is it's essentially indoctrination and brainwashing you i mean when you watch sex in the city for six seasons and then you watch the movie like the first movie and the second movie i mean that's full indoctrination into that and um i actually did a study kind of on sex in the city define that can you define that for us that word indoctrination 
Um, when you uh, say that word indoctrination, what, what does that mean? It just basically means um, brainwashing, like re-education re camps in Chairman Mao's uh, uh, yeah. cultural <laughs> revolution. It's just like, it's like, uh, if you, if, if, if you're young and you start to watch TV shows or movies with, uh, through a biblical lens, you'll see all of the constant brainwashing that's going on that, that they're, they're trying to convince you of. And, uh, and, and they've succeeded. Like uh, Hollywood has succeeded over the last 50 years um, to convince us as a culture uh, homosexuality, homosexual behavior has gone from a sin to a sacrament in the last 50 years. Yeah, and, yeah. and how did that happen? Because of Hollywood. And it's powerful. I mean, storytelling is super powerful. So when you have movies and TV shows, when you have Brokeback Mountain and, and Pose and all these like TV shows and movies that celebrate homosexuality, it's, it's very difficult to fight against that in terms of in your own mind and heart. It's very difficult to, so I always tell people, if you've watched an hour of Netflix, you need to read the Bible for an hour because you've just been lied to for an hour. Now you need the truth. <laughs> That's great. And it's true. It's like the, the more you're in the word of God, the more, um, the more the truth is clear to you and the more you can, it's the sword of the spirit. And so you yeah. can fight off the, like the lies of, of all that stuff that's coming at you. And the other thing is uh, we don't have time to do this now, but I mean, I'm actually, I, I think I'm thinking I'm write this little pocket guide on this issue, but um, the Bible like just is so the six passages in the Bible that mention homosexuality uh, directly. Uh, I could take you through that, through each of those, uh, through each, each of those passages and show you how clear it is and why it's clear. Because there's so many people that, um, I get questions all the time. Like people sometimes will ask, well, they'll say, oh, wasn't the word homosexuality, the word homosexuality wasn't put into the Bible until 1946. And I'm like, yeah, because the Bible is written in Hebrew and Greek. Like that's the original <laughs> language. And in the old King James version, yeah. when it talks about uh, its homosexuality in 1 Corinthians 6, it's, it's, it, they use the term um, uh, men abusing men or men abusers of men is the word for homosexual. Yeah. So like, of course they had to change the word so people could understand what it meant. Yeah, in modern days. But it's also like there's, you know, the other argument, there's so many arguments, but I'll just give one more example. Um, there are people say, well, Paul didn't really know about consensual homosexual love, so he doesn't really understand our contemporary understanding of orientation and blah, blah, blah. Not true. Jesus doesn't mention homosexuality specifically in the Gospels. Uh, he also doesn't mention pederasty. He doesn't mention bestiality. Um, but Jesus was speaking to Jews, and Jews were very clear about this issue from Leviticus 18 and 20. They knew, they understood without a doubt, like that homosexual behavior was sinful. Paul was speaking to wacky Gentiles in Corinth and other places who, who were all cra like sexually crazy. Yeah. And so he was, was like, like, hey guys, goes. yeah, he's like, hey guys, just so you know, these things are not, no bueno. Like, yeah, like yeah. you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. And um, like you won't inherit the kingdom of God. 
Like this is this is like serious of uh, sexual yeah. immorality. And and so the cultural distance that people say Paul didn't really know about this kind of adult consensual love is such is so false because in the in 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 the third and fourth century BC and even more recently than that in the first century, Plutarch and Plato and other uh, ancient Greek philosophers and writers wrote, wrote clearly about adult consensual homosexual love. There's lots of examples of it. I could go through it, but it's, there's, again, it's too time consuming, but Paul would have been completely aware of that kind of relationship. And yeah. he, and that those kinds of relationships were going on in Corinth and that's why he had to write them and say, stop, like, stop doing this. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, here's the thing, when somebody, uh, there's not, I mean, liberal Christianity started in the 19th century, like, there's nothing new about this. It's um, when someone, when a person wants to rationalize sin, you will go to great lengths to change yeah. the hermeneutic and exegesis of the Bible. There, I mean, you'll just, you'll do whatever it takes to, to twist it into, so it fits your passions, uh, which is, a, what's that verse? Now I can't think of it. Um, when they have itching ears. Oh yeah, they, what their itching they, ears want to hear, yeah. We'll turn the, aside to, to, to myths and... Yeah, to yeah. suit their passions, to yeah. suit their passions. Yeah. Like that verse is like exactly what's happening with this issue. So it's just, it's it's... It's just a red herring. I mean, it's because it, again, it's like so clear in the Bible. It, there's, there's, and again, I'm gonna put out a little book, a pocket guide to this, so people can just quickly see how yeah. simple it is and how clear it is. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. And you're you're also um, writing another book, a second book, um, on thirteen lies. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What prompted yeah. that? Yeah. Well. I, you know, because I lived in the dark for so long, I lived in dark, in the dark, and I believed the lie. I totally, not only believed the lies of the culture, but I, I was part of it. I was part of the lie. Like I would actually, I would write screenplays and things that, um, uh, that would celebrate all kinds of stuff. And so that, that is sinful. And so, um, there before i was a christian i there were so many lies like i believe that um I, for example this is one of the chapters in the book like i believe that the, the traditional family was outdated and regressive mm. i just thought uh like the traditional family was almost like a threat to me because as an outsider as a gay man um that to me was like the convention and it was I always kind of, and that's what in general gay, I mean, I don't know if I can't speak for all gay people, but uh, there's this sort of, I felt alienated growing up from, from the family because I, I knew I was different. And so I bought, I bought the lie that the traditional family was, was lame. Like that the mother and the father, like, you know, I thought, no, like let's, you know, let's invert everything and everything should be, you know, two dads, two moms or whatever, like no, no parents, like let's yeah. just have, um, and so the, the 13 lies, uh, I won't get into all of them, but I mean, I believe I was pro-choice. Uh, and as soon as I got saved, I mean, I was, I was firmly pro-choice and, and all my friends were obviously pro-choice. Like there was no question. And, but as soon as I got saved, I, 
understood the image of God, the Imago Dei. And I was like, mm. oh my gosh, like everyone, we're all created in the image of God. Like, yeah. And that's when it, I immediately just was like 100% pro-life, like that switch. So, so the 13 lies are all the lies that I used to believe. And now because of my uh, conversion to Christianity, now I understand the truth underneath those lies. And that's what the book is about. That's great. And, and who are you hoping that the book reaches? Um, are you, is that a book that's written primarily for Christians? Is it written for, you know, those that were in the position that you were in? Um, who are you reaching with that book? You sound like my publisher. Who's the target audience? <laughs> um, everyone is the target audience. <laughs> that's right. No, I mean, I, I mean, really, I think the main audience is, is the church, is Christians. Because yeah. I feel like Christians... As you can, as you know, I mean, Christians in because of the culture and because of how dominant it is and how convincing it is, we as believers are starting to buy the. I mean, not starting. We've been buying yeah. the buying some of these lies of the culture, and so I think it's really important to kind of show the contrast. Like, okay, this is this is what I believed when I was in darkness, and this is the truth now that I'm in light. So yeah. kind of contrast that starkly so people can, so Christians can just be like, oh yeah, like they can put words to like what they were sort of waffling on. Like, oh, yeah. okay, yeah, that's right. And so that's, that's really my target audience. And, and hopefully non-believers will read it as well and get, you know, get a glimpse of what it's like to be, dark, you know, in dark and then in light. Yeah. Oh, and that's hugely needed. I mean, I think, I tell my students, this is one of the key issues that we're dealing with in our culture today. And it's, a, it's an issue in which as Christians, we need to be able to communicate lovingly and effectively about this issue, because if we don't, we just come off as ignorant and, and uh, just believing blindly with no good reasons as to why we, we have the beliefs that we do. And so um, that sounds yeah. uh, desperately needed. So uh, that's fantastic. And um, for those of you listening, Beckett Cook is my guest and um and we're almost out of time here, but uh, BeckettCook.com. And then Beckett, when does your, your next book come out? Well, I mean, we, that's not going to be for a while because I just started writing it. So um, it takes, by the time you finish writing the manuscript, it takes a, a year for it to get public. I mean, for it to be out in the market. So it could be two years or a year if I'm really fast. <laughs> <laughs> if I work really hard, it could yeah. be a year. That's right. Okay, so, well, well, the sooner the better, so we'll yeah. put, the, put the pressure on. Um, and then um, what do you think about, you know, as Christians influencing the culture, what do you, um, there, there's, you know, for a lot of people, they look at this and they're like, well, man, this is an uphill battle. This is a, you know, uh, somebody left the cat out of the bag and we're, we're having a hard time putting it back. And so in your mind, you know, are there other um, people that are heavily involved in the homosexual lifestyle or in, in Hollywood or these cultural influencers, do you see um, Christians making inroads and, and becoming more evangelistic and being more salt and light? Like, you know, the, you said, I hadn't seen a Bible in, in Hollywood in 15 years or 16 years. Um, do you think that's changing, that, that people are becoming more, um, you know, willing to, to share the, the light of Jesus? It seems like it. I mean, it's kind of like that thing, that phenomenon when you buy a car and suddenly you realize <laughs> everyone has the same car as you do. Yeah. Um, but now, now that I'm a Christian, I do see Christians way more around in public. And, you know, uh, I was at Whole Foods recently <laughs> and 
I was going through the line and the, the woman who was uh, the, you know, cashier, um, I just, I was like, I could tell she was a Christian. I don't know what, I could sense the spirit in her. And I, and yeah. I looked at her and I said, you're a Christian, aren't you? And she was like, I sure am. And I was like, I am too, praise God. I was like, I, was like, I could tell that you had the spirit in you. She's like, I sure do. That's awesome. But I feel like, yeah, there's, there's definitely, seems like there's like a revival of some sort happening. And, um, you know, when I got saved, I was so crazy on the set of shoots I would just like tell everyone the gospel I was just like oh my gosh everyone like I would tell everybody the like the anyone who would listen I would just tell them the gospel were they and were they like get this guy out of here he's crazy I thought they were gonna do that yeah um, and I because I was I was very vocal and uh you know I would and I I was uh I was on this shoot one time with uh for Ugg Boots uh, you know, Ugg. Yeah, friend. yeah. And I was, this is, this is one of the many stories, but I was on this shoot and the, we were shooting in Malibu at a house and, and the, the, the agency, the owner of the agency, the ad agency was like, she's like, oh, we got to get this shot. Like the light's going down. It would be such a sin not to get the shot. And she's like, oh, Beckett, you know all about sin, don't you? Like she was kind of, you know, goading me. Yeah. And I was like, actually, I do. I said, like, right now, all of you are dead in your trespasses. And, and, awesome. and I'm alive in Christ. And this is why. <laughs> and they were hilarious. Like they, they loved it. And, yeah. you know, and I, I was so vocal. But, and my agency never, it, there was never seemed to be a problem until my book came out a year ago and then um, when my book came out I suddenly got cut off from Hollywood yeah. like I just yeah. got I got deleted <laughs> I got canceled yeah in Hollywood. yeah yeah canceled and I got altered. dropped by my agent so um so now yeah that that's that's kind of how that went yeah yeah well Beckett um thank you so much for being on the program today um I just think it's an incredible testimony and I'm going to be praying for you to finish that book quicker so Thank you. Uh, Thank yeah, you, yeah, looking forward to it. So uh, if you guys are listening uh, and you didn't get to hear the whole interview, um, you can check it out. It's going to be all over our YouTube channel. It'll be up on Facebook. It'll be up on uh, all our different uh, social media outlets. And uh, just spread the word because, um, you know, uh, there's hope in Jesus Christ. Nobody, uh, a lot of people are wandering around going, what is the meaning of life? And, and just thinking, is this all there is? And um, the Bible says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. You know, I, I love that scripture because it doesn't say there's barely anybody that wants to get saved. There's barely anybody that needs the hope of Jesus. It's very clear. It's not um, the harvest that is uh, not available. It's the harvest stirs. And so, um, you know, what uh, Beckett is doing, the book he wrote and the book he's writing, um, are all meant to help you become more effective in being a light for Christ and offering that hope that so many people are desperately looking for, um, but sometimes aren't finding it. So please check it out, BeckettCook.com. He's the author of Change of Affection, a gay man's incredible story of redemption. And again, Beckett, thank you so much. Thank you, Kevin. Glad to be here. Okay. God bless. We'll see God you. God bless. All hopefully right. another time. All right, cool. Thank you. Bye-bye.